0: From Britain to the Bokhachiel, from Lummi to La Push, and from the lordly sawduck to lovely Duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillayute. The climate is so friendly; it's a land that's evergreen.
1: Hello, and welcome to the history of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for Episode 60, the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle Railway Company. The building of a railroad from Spokane to Portland by the route along the north bank of the Columbia River did not result from a hastily conceived plan or sudden conclusion on the part of the Great Northern and Northern Pacific interests. Their determination to carry out this project was reached after a long period of discussion and consideration. For many years prior to the undertaking of actual construction for the question in the councils of the Great Northern and Northern Pacific popularly known as the Hill Lines was not whether this line would be built, but when. The necessity of the Hill Lines for such a railroad was obvious. The traffic of the Oregon country was completely controlled by the Union Pacific and Southern Pacific systems generally known as the Harriman Lines, and between Harriman and Hill, there was an intense rivalry. The Northern Pacific reached a portion of this territory, but only by a circuitous route via Puget Sound, while the Great Northern had no line or connection enabling it to participate in the Oregon traffic. Mr. James J. Hill was in control of the Great Northern and determined its policies, as well as being an influential factor in shaping the policies of the Northern Pacific. The heavily timbered areas of the Coast Range and of the Cascade Range in Oregon, the rich Willamette Valley, the enormous fisheries of the Lower Columbia all lay within striking distance of his completed lines. It goes without saying that this aggressive and sagacious pioneer railroad builder would not long brook a situation that shut out his lines from a field so important presently and so rich in promise for the future. In 1904, it seemed that the line was ripe for the consummation of the plans that had been formed. The parent lines, the Northern Pacific, and the Great Northern, were prosperous and amply able to finance an undertaking of this magnitude. The business of the West was rapidly expanding, and from 1904 to 1907, there was a very heavy traffic on these lines, amounting almost to congestion. In order to handle the business that was being offered, the curation of additional facilities was necessary. Instead of double-tracking the existing lines, it was deemed better to build an alternate line which would not only give the necessary relief to the existing lines but would also reach new territory. A line was, therefore, laid out from Spokane following the Marshall Canyon until it reached the undulating lava plateaus of the Evergreen State, continuing on until it entered the narrow and rugged Devil's Canyon and through Same to the Snake River, then following the Snake River to Pasco. From Pasco, the line crossed the Columbia River and followed its right or north bank to Vancouver, then across the Columbia and the Willamette to Portland. A considerable portion of the route laid out, especially along the Columbia, was a canyon route. If separate lines had been built by the Great Northern and the Northern Pacific, it would have been necessary over a considerable distance that they used the same rails. In the interest of public economy, as well as railroad economy, it was therefore decided to build a joint line, one half to be owned by the Great Northern Railway Company and one half to be owned by the Northern Pacific Railway Company. The first active step toward construction was the purchase in Portland of a considerable tract of land which was regarded as the key tract for the Portland terminals, the purchase being made in such a manner as not to make public the purpose for which it was intended. It is interesting to note in passing that this property was later the subject of long-continued litigation between the Hill interests and the Harriman interests and that this litigation was only finally settled and disposed of in the year of 1920 by a contract admitting the Great Northern and Spokane, Portland, and Seattle to the use of the Portland Union Station and Passenger Terminals. In the spring and early summer of 1905, a considerable additional property was purchased for the Portland Terminals. These purchases were so extensive that they tended to increase prices, and to obtain at a fair price property for terminal and right-of-way purposes, it was essential to organize a corporation with the power of eminent domain. It was not considered prudent at this time to make public the plan. Therefore, in organizing a corporation, the personnel of the organizers was so chosen as not to reveal the interests that were behind the enterprise. The corporation was organized on the 22nd of August 1905 and was given the name the Portland and Seattle Railway Company. The original incorporators were Mr. James D. Hodge of Seattle and Mr. John S. Baker of Tacoma. The first board of trustees was composed of James D. Hodge, John S. Baker, S.B. Linthicum, C.F. Adams, and J.C. Flanders. The Articles of Incorporation took power to build a railroad from Seattle to Portland and from Portland to Spokane. As this was a time when new railroad enterprises were constantly being launched, there was much speculation as to who might be behind this new undertaking. But the Articles of Incorporation and the personnel of the Incorporators were such that the public was mystified and the nature of the enterprise and the interests involved remained secret when Mr. C.M. LeVay, third vice president of the Northern Pacific, was made a trustee in the place of Mr. Linthicum, and Mr. L.C. Gilman, then Western Council of the Great Northern, was made trustee in the place of Mr. Hodge and organization was perfected by the selection of C.M. LeVay as president, L.C. Gilman as vice president, M.P. Mayton as secretary, C.A. Clark as treasurer, and H.A. Gray as comptroller, who were all officially connected with the parent lines. The corporate name of the company Portland and Seattle Railway Company was retained until the 31st of January 1908, when it was then changed to the Spokane Portland and Seattle Railway Company. The acquisition of real property for terminal and right-of-way purposes continued during the months of September and October 1905, and November of that year the actual work of construction commenced. As soon as it became publicly known that the Portland and Seattle Railway Company was an enterprise of the hill lines, the Harriman interest interposed the most active opposition using obstructive tactics of every character known to able and experienced railroad builders. Right-of-way necessary for the new line was purchased by the Harriman interests and held for ostensible public purposes. Wherever there was a strategic point, possible means were used to prevent the acquisition by the Portland and Seattle of property for right-of-way and terminals at such a point. For the first year of construction, the Spokane-Portland and Seattle Railway was literally compelled to hew its way through. Nonetheless, every obstacle was met and overcome, and construction proceeded so rapidly that in December of 1907, a section 112 miles in length between Kennewick and Cliffs, Washington was opened for operation. Track was laid from both ends, and the junction was made near the Cascade Locks on Washington's birthday 1908, and operation formally opened for the entire length of the line between Portland and Spokane in November of 1908. As this railroad was intended to furnish a low-grade line calculated to economically handle the highest class of traffic, the construction standards followed were of the most modern and approved engineering type of the time. This railroad may be said to have been built to order and was regarded during its time as an example of the highest class of railroad construction. Between the stations of Vancouver and Snake River, a distance of 246 miles, a maximum grade line, with no adverse trackage and compensated for curvature, of two-tenths of 1% or 10 feet to the mile was established, and from Snake River to Spokane, a maximum of four-tenths or 20 feet to the mile was adopted, except for a short distance in the Marshall Canyon near Spokane, where it was necessary to increase the grade to eight-tenths westbound. Maximum curvature for the entire railroad between Vancouver and Spokane was 3 degrees. The highest water of the Columbia, of which there was any record, was in the year 1894, and the line was laid at a minimum of 7 feet above the line of high water of that year. The bridge structures were all built with a permanent character and were capable of carrying the heaviest loads that was possible for that point in time. These were very large steel bridges, of which the most important were four steel and concrete viaducts east of Pasco one of these having a length of 1,245 feet and a height of 233 feet, and the bridges between Vancouver and Portland crossing the Columbia River, Hayden Island, Oregon Slough, and the Willamette River. These last-named bridges were notable for their type, permanence, and the cost of construction. The bridge across the Columbia River, Hayden Island, and the Oregon Slough was a continuous double-track steel structure approximately 6,400 feet long. The Columbia River Crossing consisted of 10 truss spans, including a draw span 466 feet in length, and was operated with electric power and was provided with an auxiliary gasoline engine. The piers were made of concrete faced with ashlar masonry and were placed by the pneumatic caisson method deep down into the bed of the river. The Hayden Island Crossing comprised 26 deck spans, each 80 feet in length, and they rested on concrete piers erected on pile foundations. The Oregon Slough Crossing consisted of nine truss spans and included a draw span that was 332 feet in length, all carried on concrete piers that rested on pile foundations. The Willamette River Bridge had a total of seven truss spans with a total length of 1,767 feet and also included a draw span that was 521 feet between the centers of the end piers. At the time of completion, this draw span was said to be the longest double-track railroad draw span in the world. Five of the concrete piers for the Willamette River Bridge were built by the pneumatic caisson method, and the remainder ended up being built on pile foundations. In the construction of this double-track system of bridges between Vancouver and Portland, material totals ended up being 20,120 net tons of steel, 67,529 cubic yards of concrete, and 10,811 cubic yards of ashlar Masonry, and the cost thereof was approximately $4 million, which today is about $12.1 billion. The entire rail traffic between California at the south and British Columbia at the north traversed these bridges as there was no other rail crossing between them and the mouth of the Columbia River and a point 105 miles east where the steel bridge of the Oregon Trunk Railway crossed the Columbia River between Fallbridge, Washington, and Salilo, Oregon. The rugged character of the territory traveled by this railway was indicated by the statement that between Spokane and Portland, approximately 28 million cubic yards of material was excavated, of which approximately 12 million cubic yards was solid rock, and that 19 tunnels, having a total length of 3 miles, with the longest being 2,494 feet, were driven. Throughout the entire line between Portland and Spokane, passing tracks were built at frequent intervals of sufficient length to handle 100-car freight trains or, otherwise stated, trains approximately a mile in length. Block signals were installed between Portland and Vancouver and at several stretches east of Vancouver where tunnels and large bridges made these traffic safeguards desirable. Additional lines to serve as branches and traffic feeders were acquired and constructed as follows. In March of 1907, the SPNS Railway acquired the properties of the Astoria and Columbia River Railroad, which consisted of a line that extended from Goble on the Columbia River about 40 miles from Portland to Seaside and Fort Stevens via Astoria. From Goble to Portland, the SP&S leased a line from the Northern Pacific Railway. This purchase and lease gave the SP&S a continuous line from Spokane to the sea and enabled it to reach the fish and timber resources of the Lower Columbia and the beach resorts on the seashore south of the Columbia in addition to some troop movement to and from Fort Stevens at the southern tip of the mouth of the Columbia River. In March of 1908, the SP&S Railway purchased the property of the Columbia River and Northern Railway, which extended from Lyle, a point on its line 85 miles east of Portland to Goldendale. This line came to be known as the Goldendale Branch. At the same time it purchased the properties of the Dalles, Portland, and Astoria Navigation Company, it also included three river steamers. These steamers were operated until 1915, Their operation was considered to be in contravention of the Panama Canal Act, which carried a provision forbidding the operation of railroad-owned steamboats, which did or may have competed for traffic with the railroad owning them, and they were, therefore, disposed of. In 1910, the SP&S Railway purchased a controlling interest in the Oregon Electric Railway, which owned an electric line serving the Willamette Valley that extended from Portland to Salem and had branches to Forest Grove and Woodburn, and an extension was constructed from Salem to Eugene with a branch to Corvallis. In 1910, the SP&S also acquired the United Railways, which was an electric line that extended from Portland to Wilkesboro. This line had extensions made to it after the purchase and eventually made its way to the timber-rich region that is, the Coast Range. 1910 proved to be quite the busy year in the early history of the SP&S Railway when it also commenced the construction of a line called the Oregon Trunk Railway from Fall Bridge, 106 miles east of Portland, across the Columbia and into central Oregon. This line was extended south as far as Bend, which was about 150 miles, and it reached the agricultural and stock-raising sections of central Oregon and the pine timber areas of the east slope of the Cascades. The main line that I previously described, together with the properties that were since acquired or constructed, constituted the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle Railway System. All of these properties were operated together and under one management and had a mainline mileage of approximately 850 miles with the mainline extending from Spokane to the sea and branches reaching the grain fields of the Klickitat Valley, the agricultural, stock and timber regions of Central Oregon, the highly productive Willamette Valley, and the timber resources of the Coast Range. With its less than 1,000 miles of mainline routes to its name, the SP&S Railway was clearly an underdog to the mainline railways from the get-go. Despite this, the Spokane-Portland and Seattle Railroad was a pivotal link for railroad operations for the entirety of the Pacific Northwest. This railroad company was never intended to have such a prolonged existence given the fact that it was jointly operated by the Great Northern and Northern Pacific. Despite this rather interesting setup, the SP&S persisted on as an independently classified company for nearly seven decades and easily led to the success today that railroads in the Northwest experience. When the SP&S Railway was initially conceived, it was meant to be a company on paper more than anything, and its trackage, once built and operational, was expected to be given over to the Northern Pacific. This plan didn't really work out for either side, and from the beginning, the line was given second-hand treatment by the two lines that continued to own it after the death of James J. Hill. Though it was proven time and time again to both the Northern Pacific and the Great Northern that the links that the SP&S line gave them in the Pacific Northwest was absolutely vital to their operations, they continued to be reluctant to give the line much-needed equipment upgrades. The first three decades of its existence is evidence of this. Instead of having brand new equipment to work with, the SP&S was constantly given a revolving stock of cascaded locomotives and rolling stock from its two parent companies. Finally, in 1937, nearly 30 years since the line began operations, the SP&S received its first ever brand new equipment. This happened when the Northern Pacific put in an order for a new fleet of 4664 Challengers. Rather surprisingly, tacked onto this order was another six additional 4664s for the sole use of the SP&S. This would actually become sort of a tradition for the SP&S over the next couple of decades and finally allowed for the line to have a dependable and modern roster of equipment for such a vital trunk line. Thanks to its perfect location along the banks of the Columbia River, where many wartime manufacturers sprung up to meet the needs of their country, and the fact that the SP&S line provided an excellent link to move materials from the East to the Pacific Theater, the SP&S continued to grow steadily throughout the Second World War. The railroad continued to handle a majority of freight, but it did operate several passenger lines of its own and in fact proved to be an essential cross-country link for trains such as the famed Empire Builder to get access into Portland. The 1960s for the nation's railroads was a significant time of change for how the smaller lines, like the SP&S, would be managed. It was the time of mergers, after all, and it was clear to most in the rail game around the Pacific Northwest at the time that the SP&S would play a key role in how this played out locally. This would finally play out in 1970 when the Burlington Northern Railway was created. This brought together the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Line with the Northern Pacific, the Great Northern, and, consequently, the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle Railway. These four lines were now operated under one management. Burlington Northern merged with the Santa Fe in 1996 and under the ownership of BNSF, the old route of the SP&S continues to compete for business with the Union Pacific across the Columbia. The Empire Builder continues to serve Portland daily, though it is now under the ownership of Amtrak. Slightly incredibly, most of the branch lines of the former SP&S remain in place today and continue to be active rail corridors for their communities. Really, the only major exception to this is the line out of Astoria to Fort Stevens and Seaside, the latter of which was discontinued in 1978. The former lines of the Oregon Electric Railway were sold to the Genesee and Wyoming Company in the early to mid-1990s. Thanks to the dedicated efforts of the amazing folks at the Oregon Rail Heritage Center, which is located at 2250 Southeast Water Avenue in Portland, Oregon, they have fully rebuilt and restored the SP&S 700. A 484 Northern, the 700 was delivered new to the Spokane-Portland and Seattle Railway in 1938. The 700 remains mainline certified and continues to thrill rail enthusiasts from around the Pacific Northwest in the country. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Leaving a five-star review really helps the show to grow and to gain new listeners, so any help you can do in that regard would be greatly appreciated. Sources for this episode include the Oregon Rail Heritage Foundation, AmericanRails.com, SPS700.com, the Pacific Northwest Chapter of the National Railway Historical Society, the SP&S Railway Historical Society, JSTOR.org, and HistoryLink.org. Thank you for listening to Episode 60, the Spokane, Portland, and Seattle Railway Company. Episode 61 will be released next week. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C., Stay safe out there, everyone.
0: There's peace on the Skakomish On the Queeds and on the whole There's on the Nisqually Born of ageless ice and snow A land that nature loves so much She stays the whole year round I trade a royal palace For a shack on Puget Sound There's Chimicum and Stillicum. Where spouts the gooey duck, the singing still a guamish, and the swirling skookum skookumchuck, and moklips and copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.